It was on April the 7th, A.D. 30, that Jesus Christ was crucified. I think on a day like today, it's good to think back and to reflect on the events culminating in his crucifixion. I want to turn our attention back to Thursday evening, April the 6th, A.D. 30. It was sometime late on Thursday afternoon, near 6 p.m., in a suburb in eastern Jerusalem, when Jesus and his disciples ascended a staircase to a second floor room. Jesus and his closest followers were crammed together in a room, an upper room, where they were going to celebrate the Passover meal. It was an evening that was filled with joy and at the same time with much tension and sorrow and ultimately great disappointment. Before the meal even began, Jesus demonstrated what it means to be a humble servant, and he washed his disciples' feet. As the evening began to unfold, they would have, they would have sat in stunned silence to hear that one of them was a traitor that their leader would deny that he knew him, and that all of them would abandon him. They had gathered there to celebrate one of the greatest festivals in the Jewish faith, the Passover festival, commemorating God's great act of deliverance from Egyptian bondage of his people, culminating with the Sinai covenant and the beginning of a new nation. So they're there to reflect on all of those monumental events, and Jesus is talking about betrayal and denial and abandonment. In the midst of all of that, their, their humanity shows in the fact that they get into an argument over greatness, which of them is the greatest. It resides in the, in the best of hearts. There's something in us, an insatiable longing for recognition and the admiration of others. Well, in the midst of all of that activity, Jesus served them the Passover meal and transformed it into the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate in just a few minutes. As the evening wore on, Jesus had a very extensive time of teaching. He was intending to help them understand it was better for them if he left than if he stayed. Now, that, that would have sounded crazy to them. It would have sounded as crazy to them if I were to say to Jay Lynn, it's better for me to die than to remain here with you. But he wanted them to understand only if he left them could he send the Holy Spirit, which would be in them. They sang a song and they left in the middle of the night they exited Jerusalem through the eastern gate. They crossed the Kidron Valley. They went up on the western slopes of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, to a place where Jesus regularly would take his disciples for times of prayer when he would journey to Jerusalem with them. And there, one of the most stunning and unexpected events transpired, and, and that was Jesus collapsed under unbelievable agony, pleading with God that he would let this cup pass from him. 
the cup of wrath, the cup of condemnation, the cup of judgment. If possible, let this, let this cup pass from me. Now, Peter, James, and John were very close to him when he prayed those words. All of them, the disciples minus Judas, were in the garden. And they, they would have been shocked because from Caesarea Philippi on, Jesus had been predicting, I am going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. And I'm going to be raised from the dead on the third day. With every encounter with the religious establishment, he was brave and courageous and confrontational. He didn't show the slightest indication that there was any fear in him at all, either of the religious leaders or of the thought that he was going to suffer and die. And yet there he was, three times praying, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Each time saying, yet not my will, but thy will be done. At the conclusion of those three times of prayer, Jesus gets up, gathers his disciples together, and from out of the darkness appears Judas with a cohort of Roman soldiers and a contingent from the Jewish leadership. And they came out with swords and clubs and lanterns. They, they came out like he was a, a renegade, a hooligan, a thief, an insurrectionist. And the thing that he does, which is so much like him, was he put his disciples behind him and he put himself between his enemies and his disciples. And he made them say three times that they were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and three times he said, I am he. These men you don't need. These men you don't want. And what happened next was a lot of confusion. A, a man had a part of his ear cut off. There, was, there were people fleeing into the darkness, the disciples running and abandoning him. Jesus arrested like a common criminal. And if we were writing for the Jerusalem Gazette, we would have written all of these things that we would have seen, but that's all we could write about what we could see. There was so much more going on in the unseen world of spiritual reality that we would never have any access to if the Bible didn't give us access to it. So Jesus gives us a little window. He gives us a little peek that there's more going on than meets the eye when he says to those who were arresting him, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And he makes it absolutely clear that there is satanic and demonic involvement in all of this taking place. In fact, in the upper room, before Judas ever left the upper room to go and, and meet with the, Roman, uh, the, the Jewish leadership and, and the Roman cohort, he himself was indwelt by Satan. And so there was satanic activity, there was demonic activity, there were spiritual forces at work the darkness was darker than it had ever been, and the disciples had abandoned the man that they had loved and that they had followed as Savior and Lord. And Jesus is immediately taking before his Jewish, before Jewish tribunal. He once again is treated like a common criminal and eventually is condemned to death for blasphemy. Now, they couldn't put anyone to death. The Romans reserved the power of the sword only for themselves. 
You can imagine if they had allowed Jewish Sanhedrin, the religious council, to execute the death penalty, anybody that collaborated with the Romans would be executed. So the Romans did not allow any of the people that they had conquered to have the right of the sword, the right of the death penalty. And so they condemned him to death for blasphemy, and about 6 o'clock on Friday morning, 6 a.m., Good Friday, Jesus is brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was anti-Semitic. Pontius Pilate hated the Jewish leadership. Pontius Pilate saw that what the Jewish leadership were doing in bringing Jesus to him was out of sheer, unmitigated gall. It was the fact that they were envious of him. They were envious of the fact that, that he had the people in the palm of his hand. And yet with political maneuvering and political shenanigans, the religious leaders backed Pontius Pilate into a corner and about 9 a.m. on Good Friday, Pilate condemned Jesus to death by crucifixion. He handed him over to the executioners, and they marched him outside the city walls to a hill called Golgotha, known as Place of the Skull. It was known as Place of the Skull because that's where people went to die. That's where people were executed. When the Romans took you to Golgotha, that was the last journey, that was the last trip, that was the last walk that you would ever make. And by about 10.30 that morning, Jesus was nailed to a cross, impaled on a cross. Spike drove him through his ankles, crushing the bone, spikes driven through his wrist. It wasn't uncommon for, for Romans to crucify men naked in order to heighten the humiliation and heighten the shame and to be just a further warning to those that were watching, this is what will happen to you if you turn against the Roman government. It wasn't uncommon during the high holy days, like Passover, for them to allow a person, a man, it was men that were crucified typically, to allow a man to be crucified with a loincloth. Whatever the situation, it was, it was human cruelty at its finest. Jesus died sometime around 4.30 or 5 on Good Friday, and he was placed in a borrowed tomb by 6 p.m. that evening. At 6 p.m., the Sabbath, the Sabbath began, and, and everyone had to return home. So we're writing for the Jerusalem Gazette. We're, we're laying out the story for our readers. Here was a man that had the people in the palm of his hand. He would preach with spell-binding enthusiasm. And he could heal the sick and feed the hungry. He could resuscitate the dead. He, here is a life filled with great potential that has been cut short. Here is a man that could have been the Messiah, but obviously he wasn't because Messiahs don't get crucified. Great prophet, probably, 
That's all that could be written from a human perspective. But behind the scenes, in the unseen world of spiritual reality, there was the plan of God being executed with with pristine precision. I want to read you some verses, they'll be on the screen, you can follow along, that describe exactly what was taking place in the spiritual realm as Jesus was dying. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So people could observe Jesus writhing in agony. They could see him drifting in and out of consciousness. They could have seen him struggling for every breath, but they could not see that the sin of humanity was being placed on his shoulders. Galatians 3.13, Paul puts it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's why they wanted him to die by Roman execution. Those final words come from the book of Deuteronomy. If the crowds found out that the political leaders were instrumental in the crucifixion of Jesus, they would say they've done it to another prophet. God sends a prophet, they kill the prophets. But if he's crucified, he's not a prophet, he's a man cursed of God. Because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So they could see him writhing in agony, drifting in and out of consciousness, but they couldn't see a curse, the curse of God falling on him. Peter put it this way, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Notice that Peter says, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And what we saw in, one of the, in the very first verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He has saved us to be a righteous people, to be a holy people, to be a people who hates our sin and doesn't make excuses for our sin. Our sin, Jesus was punished for. One last passage, and I want to say just a little bit more about this passage than the earlier ones. It's found in Romans chapter 5. Paul writes, you see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been justified, we have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? 
For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The cross of Christ is simultaneously a picture of God's righteous hatred of sin and an eternal statement of his lavish love. You could not see that with human eyes on Good Friday. The demons of hell had no idea that God was redeeming him for himself a people for his own possession by his son dying in their place, bearing the punishment for their sin. The Jerusalem Gazette reporter could have articulated the events that he could see, but he could never have understood what was taking place behind the scenes where God was carrying out his plan in the salvation of a people. Let me ask three questions. First, who were we before we met Jesus? Paul says we were powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. Powerless because there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. Ungodly and sinners because we're sinners by birth and sinners by choice. And not friends of God, but enemies of God. Every person outside of Christ is an enemy of God. That's not my language, that's God's language. Every person who doesn't know Jesus has God as his enemy. Better to have any human being or army in the world as our enemy than have God as our enemy. What did God do for us in Christ Jesus? We need to be reminded that it's not Jesus protecting us from an angry God. The plan of God originated with God the Father. It was executed by God the Son. It was sealed by God the Spirit. So what did God do for us in Christ? Look at the words on the screen again. Christ died. He says it three times, in fact. Christ died. Christ died for us by his blood, which is a reference to the death of Christ. God could not save us any other way. This was the only means by which God could redeem us for himself. His son had to die in our place. And notice the words, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. Jesus shed his blood for us, but Jesus shed his blood for you. Because God loves you. You may not love yourself. You may not have a friend in the world. You may feel ostracized and alone. You may feel like an island at a family reunion when all of the other family members are, are laughing and enjoying one another's company. You feel like you're on an island. God loves you. Christ died for you. His blood proves it. Well, what happens to us? 
when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Paul in this passage says we're justified. I love that word justified, but I feel like I always need to define it because it's not a word we use very much. To be justified is to be forgiven of every sin you've ever committed or every, of any sin you ever will commit, and is to be credited with Christ's righteousness. It's not like God forgives us and, and we have a, a zero slate in heaven. Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. We're clothed in a righteousness that's not our own. We're saved. We're saved from God's wrath. We're saved to God's family. We're reconciled. We're not enemies. We're reconciled. And at the end of that passage, he says, if God saved us while we were his enemies, which he did, how much more will he keep us now that we're his? He's going to keep us. It's not like he saves us and then he says, now do the best you can and it's, it's all up to you. He never loses a single child. Sometimes we lose our children. We're at a theme park. We're in the grocery store. They get lost. They get separated from us. He's never lost a single child. Every child of God who's been born again by the Spirit of God will be delivered safe and sound in glory. You may wonder, well, you know, you don't know what I did today. It doesn't matter what you did today. If you've been born again by the Spirit of God, you have been forgiven by God. You have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You belong to Him. You are a part of His family. Now think of all that He's done for us. How can we not love Him? How can we not serve Him? How can we not follow Him? How can we not sing loudly and boldly and confidently out of love and devotion for the one who died for us? How can we sit idly by while, while multitudes of humanity go to damnation when we have had the good message preached to us? How can we not do battle with indwelling sin when the one who bore our sin in his body died for us? How can we make excuses for ourselves when he made no excuse but bore our sins in his body on the tree? He justified us. He saved us. He reconciled us. He's kept us. God help us live every day for him because of what he did for us on April the 7th. A.D. 30. In just a moment, we're going to, going to pass out the elements for the, for the Lord's Supper. And if you're here tonight, you're following Jesus, you're seeking to live for Jesus. I'm not saying you're perfect because not a single one of us are. We're up and down, on and off, but we're pressing on by God's grace. It may be two steps forward, one step back, but by the grace of God, we're seeking to follow Him faithfully as best we can then we, we would invite you to participate uh, with us tonight. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Dr. Eliff's going to assist me, and our deacons will come forward. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that on that hill called Golgotha, where it looked like a Jewish man had just been impaled on a cross and as he writhed in agony, he would just be another, another, another person that would die at the hands of the Romans. You were securing for yourself a people for your own possession. 
a people that would love you and follow you, that would be your children, and you would be their father. Father, human eyes could not have seen all that was being accomplished or any that was being accomplished on that horrific day, but it was according to your plan and in your good timing. In Jesus' name, amen.